pretends around the nuns and already she's saying sorry about 400 times. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 204 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and we've been living in our flat for nearly a year now, but last week discovered a secret drawer. Shut <gasps> up. Wow. So exciting. Where is it? In the kitchen. There's a big drawer, but then at the top, the very top of that drawer looks like sort of fascia, but you pull it, secret drawer. Is there anything in it? There is now, Jen. Uh, I was <laughs> going to say, so did you find drugs in it? Because I could be there in, I don't know, an hour. <laughs> it was empty. We lived in a house when I was younger that had a secret room underneath it. That is exciting. Yeah, so the front of the house was like higher up than the back of the house, so it kind of went down like at a slant. And the kitchen was downstairs and then basically under the floorboards there was like another room next to the kitchen and we used to go down there and crawl around under the floorboards uh, and my parents obviously put a stop to that pretty quickly. (laughs) I used to live in a house with a locked room. We lived there for about three years and there was one door that was just locked. Like Bluebeard? Like was where the landlord had put all his stuff but it was quite normal you just didn't think about it. But then when you did sit and think about it, you just kept thinking, I wonder what's in there. Yeah, that's And you'd weird. have these horrible visions of, like, mannequins and things. Oh. It was, yeah. Mm. Yeah. You'll be pleased to know, I'm sure, that I have since checked all of our furniture for secret drawers. Even stuff I've owned for years, I've been like, maybe there's a secret drawer. And sadly, have not discovered any more secret compartments. But it is the second time I've discovered a secret drawer in a bit of furniture, having owned it for a long time. What what was the first one? Bedside table. And there was a little bit at the top that I didn't understand. And it turns out it slides out and it's like a little platform for you to put your coffee. Oh. Had that for three years. <laughs> Moved house with it twice before I worked that out. Thank God you didn't join the police. <laughs> That's true. For many reasons, Hannah. I'm Hannah Dunleavy. And my new desk has finally arrived. No secret drawers. Oh, um, you don't yeah. know. It might give it uh, yeah, a year. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's true. I don't know. I ordered it like months ago, it seems, and it finally arrived, which is exciting. But also my new blinds arrived and they arrived this morning at 8 a.m. Mm. And I was actually awake at 8 a.m. Surprisingly, unusually, I was awake at 8 a.m. But I wasn't ready to open the front door. And so I just shouted down. Just leave them, thanks. And then knock, 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 knock on the door again. So I got up and I decided to grab the closest thing, like, to put on. And it was a pair of dungarees. And this guy continues to bang on the door. And I'm just like, just leave them. And I put them on. And in my panic, I put, like, one of my legs, not through the leg, but through, like, one of the armholes. (laughs) And I do this proper hopping, like, jump. And I end up on the floor at the top of the stairs, just weakly shouting, just leave it. (laughs) Save yourselves. (laughs) Just leave them. And then I heard a van start. And I was like, okay, I can go out now and sort myself out and go down and collect them. And it was my new blinds. Oh, that reminds me of the first day I started my paper round as a a wee 12-year-old. And it was a five o'clock start, which was very, very early. And I got up and my mum said all she heard was, oh, and then this massive bang because I'd put both of my legs in the same knicker hole and then just fallen over. (laughs) (laughs) Wallaging. 
I'm Jen Offord, and on Friday I accidentally became a published author. But I mean, this, you've been planning to be a published author. I... I have been planning it. I've been planning to be a published author on the 9th of June, but the dear old boys at the Charlton Athletic Museum who wanted to stock the book got their books the other day and they thought, fuck it, we'll just, <laughs> we'll just start selling them now. So they're on sale. If you want to go to the Charlton Athletic Museum, you can pick up an advanced copy of my book, The Year of the Robin. There are people all over the country trying to get on dungarees and hopping through <laughs> one leg <laughs> to rush down there, Jim. That's amazing. It's a lovely little place. I just want to give them a plug because they've been very helpful with the book and they were very lovely when I went there when I was researching it and it has got an extraordinary archive if you are interested in the history of football there you go well done all round Charlton Athletic Museum coming up Ellie Greenhalgh the lead on the women's development unit which is a partnership project between the connection at St Martin's and Solace Women's Aid and Caroline Muir from the 18 Keys project at St Martin's Trust talked to me about a new strategy that aims to end women's homelessness in London and hopefully beyond Mm, good for them I talked to actor Shobna Galati about the fall and rise of Little Voice embracing the grey and working with Victoria Wood yes That makes it sound like I've worked with Victoria Wood. And alas, apart from the time I accidentally felt her boob, I have not worked with Victoria Wood. Good story there. In Jenny Off the Blocks, the referee's a woman? (laughs) And hail mother of mercy and of love. In Race or Dated, we are watching 1992's Sister Act. But first, and it's time for the Bush (laughs) Telegraph. Cue sting. Bush! Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where at this current time we are refusing to talk about monkeypox. Never heard of it. Nope. Me neither. I don't even know why I said that. So, let's talk about Russia instead. More specifically, the prominent Americans who have been banned from the country, according to an updated list released by the Russian government. It's in retaliation for US sanctions, announces lifetime bans for 963 people and was released on the same day President Biden signed a support package providing nearly $40 billion in aid for Ukraine. So, who is on this list? Tell me. Well, according to this headline by CNBC, quote, Biden tops list of Americans (laughs) banned from travelling to Russia. Uh, I'm pretty sure that it's not a competition. In fact, I'm pretty sure everything not being a dick measuring contest was supposed to be one of the benefits of Biden. The current president was, in fact, already banned. But of course he's at the top of the list. He's the president. (laughs) God bless Morgan Freeman, who was also (laughs) on this list. But he was never going to be first. What name should I write first, Vlad? Man who fight with Robin Hood. (laughs) Just FYI, if you're interested, and I'm sure you won't be, I found an excellent programme on the History Channel in which Morgan Freeman goes to prisons and tells you how people escaped from them. Amazing. Does he actually go to the prisons or does he Uh narrate it like a godlike character? He presents it more than narrates it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's new, but it is amazing. (laughs) Is that why he's on the list? Yeah. There's also been a great deal of interest in the fact that Donald Trump isn't on the list, which many believe is a sign of something suspicious, rather than him just not being seen as being important enough. 
If it does turn out to be a snub, please someone let him back on Twitter for a day so I could watch <laughs> him melt down about it. Elsewhere, the list reads like a who's who of US politics. Kamala Harris, Chuck Schumer, AOC and Nancy Pelosi all appear. In fact, so comprehensive a sweep of US politics, is it, that it includes a number of people who couldn't travel to Russia even if they wanted to. John McCain, who died in 2018, <laughs> is one of several deceased Americans now banned from haunting Russia. You can't be too careful, Hannah. <laughs> also on the blacklist are former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, billionaire investor George Soros, head of DreamWorks Jeffrey Katzenberg, <laughs> sentient algorithm Mark Zuckerberg and Biden's son Hunter, although I'd be amazed if the Americans ever let him and any associated technical <laughs> equipment out of their sight ever again. You can't be too careful, Hannah. <laughs> you can't, no. I mean, one minute you're just smoking a crack bowl. <laughs> Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is also newly banned from entering Russia, but given he's a man of so many incredible disguises, oh. good luck keeping him out. Oh. Uh, no, I'm not Justin Trudeau. I am the world's most eminent feminist. What? Uh, black feminist. Of course. Sorry. Yeah. Righto. I have smeared up to my knees in goose fat in order to wade through the grubby waters that are the Tory party. How grubby? Well, I reckon I'd come up cleaner if I swam through raw sewage. Shall we mm. start with Partygate and the Sue Gray report? Yeah, why not? And also, where is it? Well, <laughs> it is coming. The senior civil servant's highly anticipated full report into Downing Street's lockdown-breaching party antics is expected to be published this week, following the completion of the Metropolitan Police's investigation. And so, of course, of course, various <laughs> government insiders, all anonymous, of course, of course, have started taking a pop at Grey herself, using the Daily Mail, of course, of course, <laughs> to accuse Grey of, quote, playing politics and enjoying the limelight a little too much. Enjoying the limelight. There have been more sightings of Shergar. Anyway, obviously the Grey Report could potentially prove highly damaging to the Prime Minister. And if I sound a bit weary and unconvinced here, it's because we appear to be living in a world where our democracy voted for baby food, which turned out to be full of broken glass, and then actually turned out to be just broken glass. And yet we've decided to keep spooning it in anyway. <laughs> because seriously, how bad does a political party have to be? And I don't mean in a, the cake didn't even leave the Tupperware sense. As of May the 5th, 26% of people polled still thought Boris Johnson was doing a good job. How? That's our baseline. It is our baseline. Wow. Leaving Johnson aside for now, as I'm sure most of his exes wish they had, in recent <laughs> weeks, the Conservative Party has been faced with a number of sex scandals. In April, MP for Wakefield, Imran Ahmad Khan, was found guilty of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy. He eventually stood down two weeks later but was defended by his former colleague, Crispin Blunt, who said he was a victim of a serious miscarriage of justice. Again. That's just fucking appalling. Yeah, I, I did that again. Just to be clear, Blunt did initially say something similar about Khan, then apologised and withdrew those comments, but now he said it again. Okay, Crispin. It's also come to light that while under caution for the incident Khan was later found guilty of, he joined an expert panel offering advice on grooming gangs and went on to contribute to a policy paper titled Group-Based Child Sexual Exploitation Characteristics of Offending. 
that makes me so furious because not only is that the hill that Blunt is choosing to die on, well, what we've got is elected members of parliament openly saying that verdicts are wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And he was under caution at this point when he, he joined that expert panel. I mean, and I guess in a way he did know what he was talking about. <laughs> yeah, you nearly got some dark coke in his face then. <laughs> Virtually. Hey, we're not at a lockdown party. Come on, <laughs> come on. Another MP in the party, has that's the Tory party in case you've forgotten, has been arrested <laughs> on suspicion of rape and other offences and has been ordered to stay away from Westminster. He has not been named and has as yet not been charged. And so with all of that, it's sort of baffling, but is it really, that John T. Campbell, a Conservative local election candidate for Preston, on a number of occasions now, and Deputy Chair of Campaigning for Preston's Conservative Association, not only decided to write the following, but reread it and thought, yeah, that should totally go on the internet. <laughs> Brace yourselves. Here's the thing with girls 22 or under. It's already off to an incredible start, isn't yeah. it? Here's the thing with girls 22 or under. They smell massively different to a girl of 28. Girls 16 to, say, 23 have this creamy, buttery, slightly sweet smell that is unbelievably magnetic. I want to be sick on his face. Right on his face. And at 45, my magnetic, creamy, buttery smell is long gone. That's well curdled, mate. It's curdled, yeah. <laughs> Which means I'm confident he won't get off on it, the dirty article. Just to reiterate, this is all from the past few weeks. Mere weeks. Yeah, there's another terrible, I just couldn't bring myself to talk about it, date rape drug accusation floating around now about another Tory MP. Hmm. We'll save that for the next Bush Telegraph. Yeah. Well... Would you like a palate cleanser, a bit of good news? Anything that isn't creamy or buttery, (laughs) please. Well, it may be of limited interest to some, but I've done my best to extrapolate a life lesson for us all from it. You're like Aesop. (laughs) (laughs) On Sunday, the FA Vars was won by none other than Newport Pagnell FC. Whoop, 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 whoop. I know. Last month, I found out Lucy Beaumont used to live there. This month, the town wins the Amateur FA Cup. I'm dropping down the list of most exciting things to happen in Newport Bagnell quicker than the fact that Morrissey once left a bag there. (laughs) I'm fairly confident that he won't be listening, but on the off chance, the BT sports commentator who said Newport Bagnell didn't have many claims to fame, I'd ask, have you ever heard of Aston Martin? And were this a live call-in show, and were he in fact, alive, my dad would 100% be ringing in to say, Tickford Bridge is the oldest iron bridge in the country, still open to traffic. And he'd be right, damn it. (laughs) Anyway, ambling at no great speed towards my point, listeners will know I have a complicated relationship with my hometown. You thought I was going to say with my dad. (laughs) (laughs) It's all part and parcel of the same thing, isn't it? (laughs) And a complicated relationship with football. So, why is this good news? A plucky team of amateurs wins the FA Vars every year. Sure, but this town, my town, has about 17,000 people in it and it's sold more than 7,000 tickets. That's amazing. 
And I suppose you could say that some of them might not actually live in Newport Pagnell, might be people from nearby villages or, you know, people who used to live in Newport Pagnell. But actually having driven through it on Sunday, the streets were empty, like lockdown empty, except in the places where people were celebrating, you know, Tory lockdown (laughs) celebrating. Tupperware cake for everyone! (laughs) Okay, so I promised you a lesson for us all, and here it is. And I realise it comes from cynical me, but it does have a happy ending. You might not turn out to be the next. Mickey, help a friend out with the name of a world good footballer, please. Uh, Lionel Messi. You might not turn out to be the next Lionel Messi. You know what? That's the most of us. That's why Lionel Messi doesn't have to have a nine-to-five on top of whatever he does at whatever (laughs) club he plays for. But, and here's the good news, you might yet score an absolute belter and do a massive knee slide at Wembley and your entire town will be chuffed as fuck for you. Newport Pagnell women's team is looking for players if you live in that neck of the woods, just saying. Are you going to sign up? Are you going to join in? Uh, <laughs> can you imagine what they would do if I turned up and said, can I play football? Can you imagine? More news next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where men don't even try to disguise their Tom Dickery. Let's look at the recent cover of Sports Illustrated, which features... Do we plus... have to? <laughs> oh, we do. Uh, do you remember when we were trying to work out what to call standard issue and we decided we couldn't be SI in case people got us confused with Sports Illustrated and you very sadly put your swimsuit back in the drawer? <laughs> <laughs> the recent cover of Sports Illustrated features plus-size model Yumi New and just happens to be the magazine's annual swimsuit special. Now, I have mixed feelings about the whole annual Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue tradition anyway. Obviously, it's your body, women. Do with it what you want. And if that's having photos taken of you in your special water undies, then okey-cokey, pig-in-a-pokey. But men are going to gawp at it. And some of those same men are probably going to think you want to know their thoughts on your body. Should they just keep their trap shut? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, for sure. Will they, though? Oh, hello, clinical psychologist, YouTuber and manosphero, Jordan B. Peterson. Let me grab my notebook because this is bound to have a lot of long words to jot down. Sorry, not beautiful. And no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that, Peterson tweeted. It's a conscious progressive attempt to manipulate and retool the notion of beauty, reliant on the idiot philosophy that such preferences are learned and properly changed by those who know better. But don't let the facts stop you, he added, along with two links to scientific studies on attractiveness. Mm. He sounds overtired to me. Does he sound overtired to you, Hannah? He does have. Jordan Peterson apparently has a really, really, really weird diet. He like only eats meat or something so he sounds like that yeah despite the usual dude bros agreeing with peterson and sharing their own critiques of newsbody a lot of people were quick to slam peterson's comments and instead of thinking about what he'd said or you know taking that nap maybe having some vegetables peterson (laughs) flounced off twitter in a huff his account remains active but he's told his staff not to let him have access to sweeties sorry twitter I'm going to miss him. <laughs> For those in any doubt, Yumi Nu looks lush. 
Beauty standards are arbitrary, not to mention racist, and they're nonsense that change over time. And perhaps most importantly, knew herself, was fucking delighted with the cover, saying, it's amazing, I'm on cloud nine. I feel like we're in a place right now where people are making space for more diversity on magazine covers. It's a big time for Asian American people in media. I know I play a big role in representation in body diversity and race diversity, and I love to be a role model and representative of the plus size Asian community. Yeah, good for her. And she eats vegetables. She's a winner. Yeah. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined this morning by Shobna Galati. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to our chat. I'm really pleased to be here. You are currently in Liverpool, am I right? Yeah, I'm in Liverpool doing The Rise and Fall of Little Voice at the Playhouse, which is a lovely theatre, I have to say, and has one of the best green rooms I've ever ever been in got a cooker wowzers and a fridge freezer so beautiful it's so beautifully done and everybody cares for it and then there's this wonderful dining table in the middle of the room and then there's some really comfy chairs to sit on as well I mean it's just wonderful I mean it's a place to be a proper green room where everybody in the theatre can meet yeah it's great look at you bragging we usually get a stained sofa when we go somewhere with standard issue (laughs) There's no stained sofa, there's Jofas. They've been clad in denim. (laughs) (laughs) So, as you say, you are currently on tour, the rise and fall of Little Voice, which Mm. is Jim Cartwright's play, which is 30 years old this year, I think. Yes, it is, yes. It must be lovely to be out and about in the country after spending so long, presumably trapped in your house like the rest of us. It has been wonderful, though I have been on tour recently. I've been on tour since September last year, not with this play particularly, but also with Everybody's Talking About Jamie. Yes, indeed. I finished that in LA, very glamorous, I know. And then got straight on the plane and straight into rehearsal for The Rise and Fall of Little Voice, which was, you know, interesting because obviously I've never really been to that side of America before. And, you know, the sleep patterns, oh my goodness, sleep patterns were all over the place. But I think just in that state of frenzy, I was able to, you know, access this character, Mari Hoff. (laughs) (laughs) Now, good point. Mari's not the main character of... Little voice as such, as well, she's, she's certainly not, not, the, she's not the titular role, is she? Obviously, little voice, but is the, yes, she has, I reckon, probably a good 50% of the dialogue, most of which is shouted. <laughs> I mean, how's yeah. your voice holding up? Yeah, it's a little tired and a little strained at the moment because we're more than halfway through. Yeah, I think she has 350 lines. Yeah, that is a lot. This is a lot. I mean, the play centres around Little Voice, of course, and and Mari is Little Voice's mother. We set the scenes up for Little Voice. We create her world. You know, the mother and daughter relationship is central to the whole piece, really. And and then you can see why Little Voice is is little, because her mother's so loud. Can I ask you what you make of Mari? Because... In a lot of ways, she's the villain of the piece, but you've got to have some sympathy for her or the whole thing wouldn't work. Yeah, I think she's obviously she's a flawed character, which I think is just from my perspective, playing a flawed character is something that I've always wanted to play on stage. I often play, you know, the good guy, the, you know, the ally. Yeah. Or the pantomime villain. But do you know what I mean? This is a person who has had her problems and then never worked it out and then takes it all out 
on her daughter. I mean, it's like cycles of abuse, I think, that Mari's locked in. She's not able to get out of them, and her way of dealing with it is alcohol. She is an alcoholic. It's quite a strenuous role to play, actually, because, you know, you've got to do that so really as you know even though it's on stage mm. you've got to give the audience that kind of sense that she is drunk yeah all all through the play actually she's, yeah. drunk. <laughs> she's drunk through the play you know she relies on alcohol to see her through because she can't she can't actually work anything out for herself she she, she knows she knows how she got there, but she doesn't know where she started. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think she also she thinks that someone's going to come and save her from it. Oh yes, she's an attractive woman who lives in the in in the patriarchy of that time, and that patriarchy still exists. I mean, let's face it, it does. She can only sort of identify herself through the medium of a man, and the first man she married was a person that she thought. She, I mean, I say I. I thought I found Gary Cooper. <laughs> yeah. You know, ended up I'd found olive oil. <laughs> I just kind of think of my own life sometimes. I think about how, you know, we make our choices really early on in life when we're not even grown ourselves. Yeah. I can identify with her there a little bit, you know, like she she just made the wrong choice. And then, of course, given her economic circumstances and her social circumstances she can't get out and then because she's made all those bad choices she still can't get out because you know she's just wound herself into a cycle of abusing herself and then abusing her daughter yeah the thing about doing this play is because it's Jim Cartwright it's northern grit which has that kind of feel of I don't know there's a lot of comedy in it I mean it's foul but it's comedy I mean, I don't know. We've had a lot of discussions around that recently, haven't we? Yeah. Care of Julia Hartley Brewer, you know, and her <laughs> ridiculousness. She's absolutely tone deaf, I have to say that. It's brutal. It's brutal, but it's funny, this thing. And, it, and it's a kind of strange balance of it. I mean, I have one line where I say, you know, some people laugh at it and some people don't. They take it so seriously. I just say, oh, she's morbidity itself. Mm. I mean, I I find it really funny that somebody would go that far and sort of say, you know, as a as an insult to her daughter, and you know, it's kind of like, yeah. and some people just laugh. They just go, oh, "Did she just say that?" You know, oh my goodness, because it's so extreme. Yeah, it is it, really shocking. Yeah, it's shocking and extreme. Of course, alongside all of that, there's some really heinous stuff. You know, about size and everything else it is quite foul but I think there is a place for it there's a place for it in its time as a period piece and it it sets up where we are and how you know how we were and how far we've come actually because as well a bit being set in Scarborough Mm. it has that sort of the fallen splendor of Scarborough which I suppose is Mari's fallen splendor as well isn't it she's trying to come to terms with that she's not quite what she once was yeah, and she was something, you know. She, she, you know, she had health and and breasts and legs. I mean, she had this kid, and it kind of—I don't know—that some women may feel this way about having had a child because it changes everything for you. She's not maternal, Mari. So it's interesting. I kind of have placed it in my head that this happened when she was when she was a teenager. Yeah, she had a daughter early, you know, thinking that this would, you know save her but it 
threw her world apart, I think. You know, maybe she was depressed. Maybe she had depression after the birth. We don't really know. It's not really explained. All we see is that sort of the symptoms of what has happened rather than the cause. Now, Mari's been played by some pretty great British actresses. You know, obviously in the film by Brenda Blethyn, on stage by Alison Steadman, by Leslie Sharp. Does that make playing her an exciting challenge or a, or a daunting challenge? I think it's exciting. I mean, I, I, I know Alison because we've been doing a comedy together on Radio 4 and we've been recording it when everybody's, you know, free. So we've recorded it over a period of time. So we've seen each other quite regularly during the rehearsal period. <laughs> So, you know, Alison's always, she says, you know, it's a hell of a role show, you know, it's kind of beginning to the end, you're on and you're full throttle. And she is right. Yeah, I think she's coming to watch actually in in Richmond when we when we get there to that part of the country. How lovely. I'd be looking forward to her watching because I absolutely admire her as an as an actor and of course all the women who have played her. My friend Denise Welsh played her at um, the Royal Exchange and I, I remember watching her and I've seen Beverly Callard do it and I've seen, it's, it's excellent, excellent performances and I've seen Leslie do it in the West End. I never saw Alison do it in ninety. Too, I think I don't know where I was or what I was. I think I was living in France at the time, so I didn't. I wasn't in London. I don't know. I just wanted to play her because they've all played her so brilliantly. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. that kind of thing. It's like, oh, I wish I could have a go at that. It's exciting to see a woman like that on stage, and it's exciting to see a woman who has no filters and is so deeply flawed. And you just want to play that, you know. I've played a lot of allies and pretty, pretty characters. Quite nice to be grotesque, you know what I mean? It's just <laughs> lovely. There's some sort of like freedom in that that you that is like play. I mean, it, that's what I enjoy about my job as an actor is just to be able to play characters. This is the key to it. Even if you know I'm not Mari, I'm not that. But you know, I'm, I'm in I'm in the show with my son, so he. Often that was goes my next me. question. <laughs> He's so funny. You know, yesterday, one of my parents' oldest friends came to watch in Liverpool. He kind of makes a day of it, Margaret and Harold. You know, Harold said, I've never heard you shout like that before. <laughs> and my, my son at, at tea just went really quiet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask whether working with your son on this gave you the opportunity to essentially say, God, look what a great mother I was in comparison to what Mari is. I think we all make mistakes. I'm I'm not going to just put Mari in a box like that. I mean, she's horrible. Okay, yeah. And I wouldn't say it was horrible like that. But we all do make those kind of mistakes as mums, I think. You know, we can be sharp, frustrated, fed up, all of those kind of things. Of course, we don't take it that far. Hopefully we don't. But I think being a parent is complicated. And I always say this to him. I think, you know, when I wrote, wrote the book about me and my mum, Remember Me. Even writing that, as I was writing, I was discovering my mother as a woman, you know, separate to her being my mum. Yeah. I think that happens with age as you grow older because you obviously you have some life experience that, you know, when you're in your 20s, you think you've got it, but you haven't. You know, you don't see the person beyond the role of mother or father or guardian. You don't see the person we're often categorised and labelled. And I think that that's, 
that's another label. They are trying to do the best, but they don't know what the best is more than anybody else, do they? And of course, within that, there's all sorts of other people who don't want to do their best. But, you know, my choice is always to try my best. And, you know, obviously, I think what's hard at the moment for me and him is on tour, we are thrown together more than we've ever been, you know, since he was a child is an adult and so in the rehearsal room we are you know just actors and then in the car driving to venue to venue you know is mother and son yeah did you pack that have you oh did you remember have you oh where is that charger no I told you to say you know check the plugs (laughs) because I just remember he's now the age that I was when I became pregnant oh really yeah so that's interesting as well, you know, just it, it occurred to us the other day. <laughs> I'm not brilliant at parenting. I just, I can't say that I'm, you know, but I think he's, he's a nice fella. Do you know what I mean? And he, <laughs> he's fine and I'm touching wood here, but I just want him to just be his own person and his own actor and all of those things. Because, you know, it's, it's complicated because in a space where you're not working with your children, you know, you're with actors in you make offers and you help each other. You know, I'm very wary to do that with him because what is that line? Yeah. I don't want to cross that line, uh, the, the line that would be, you know, I mean, I'll help him and I'll give him advice, but I think at the end of the day, I can't do what I do with other actors with him. You know, it, 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 I haven't found that way yet. So, and I think maybe we will after after this, you know, maybe we will after this understand how it is to work with each other because I'm sure we'll play mother and son at some point. Yeah. Yeah, that would be good. I wanted to talk to you about something else that I've seen you in recently. You were being super glam in Hull Razors. Oh, yes. That was so much fun. <laughs> it looks a lot of fun. I spoke to Lucy Beaumont about it when it first came out because she was yeah. one of the writers, which... You will obviously know, but if people listening don't know, I really enjoyed it. Fundamentally based in in northernness, not just in location, but in sort of in spirit. Yeah, and you were terrific in it. Um, Thank you. I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, that was great as well, playing a a mum and a nan. Yeah. It's nice to be able to play my age, you know, Mari Hoff and, you know, the Nima. And it's nice to be able to play my age. So I think when I played Anita in Dinner Ladies, I played 12 years younger than I was. And then when I played Sunita, again, 12 years younger than I was. So it's so nice to be able to just allow myself to be in the space of those women that I'm playing now. It's quite it's quite nice. It's it's just really sort of refreshing i just can't yeah. explain it i i just i'm really i really enjoy you know when i say oh i'm a nana and everybody's you're a grandmother <laughs> yes why not why yeah. not what it's it's possible and it's it's very possible we've had this conversation quite a lot on the podcast about when people say you don't look your age mm. and i know they mean it as a compliment but mm. You know, what is that? What's that saying about other women? I mean, I'm 48. What's that saying about other women who are 48? I think there isn't a way to look at 48 or however old anyone is. That's just the way that you do look. I mean, there's so much pressure on women to keep looking glamorous into, you know, their well, 50s, just, their 60s. I didn't grow out my grey in lockdown. I've been I did. growing out. <laughs> I'm just leaving it. 
and it just it was just a choice really because I was so fed up with having to go to the hairdresser to dye my hair or go and get it from the supermarket and box dye and uh, you know eat the pressure as an actress as well and then I couldn't get the roles anyway of a younger girl because I was too old I'm too old so then I couldn't get the old roles because I looked too young and I just yeah. thought oh flipping it so I I just allowed allowed the grey to grow and don't know whether that's made a difference or not but I feel like it's made some difference to me to just sort of accept the how I am. I absolutely agree. I stopped doing mine in lockdown because I went grey really early. I went grey in my twenties, so I used to dye it. And it's had all kinds of bonus things that I didn't even realise. Yeah, I think just the upside of being able to wash your hair and just leave it. I, I think I've had quite interesting <laughs> and some strange comments from men. It's very interesting. Like, uh, oh your sister looks much younger than you. And I go, does she? Does she really? Is that because she does her hair yeah. and I don't? <laughs> you know, what, what, why is grey associated with old anyway? I mean, a load of young girls want to dye their hair grey. Yeah, that's true. And like I say, like, I went grey really, like, really young. It, it's not for old people. I know lots of people who started going grey in uh, in their 20s, in their 30s. Yeah. It's, it's just pigment, isn't it? It's just whatever happens to your hair. As long as it's healthy, I'm just happy. Everything, even my eyebrows, I'm not even doing those anymore. I just kind of like let them be and let them be the shape that they've always been. So that's quite refreshing as well. Yeah, it is. I'm just enjoying it. Very healthy sounding, I have to say. Yeah. Now, I have one last question for you, and it's something that you just mentioned, which is Mm. in lockdown, I rewatched Dinner Ladies. Yes. And what an absolute just joy it is it's just so delightful do you ever go back to it and watch it or is that quite a tough thing for you to do I think when when lockdown happened and it it went on Netflix didn't it so a lot of people started to at me on Twitter because there'd be new audiences for Dinner Ladies because they'd seen it before and it has a timelessness about it yeah. Um, and I know it, it feels sometimes it feels quite period if you watch it because, you know, we're in a canteen and, you know, there's not, you know, the computers and there's not all the things that you have nowadays in canteens, you know, and you can check out by yourself. There's nothing, nothing of that. But the words in it are, are they're classic and of all time, aren't they? You know, people still I mean, I wear HRT patches now, didn't at the time. <laughs> It just makes me laugh because they do fall off. <laughs> you just think, oh, yeah, well, it does. It is funny. You know, there, there are bits in it that I now know are funny because I'm of that age. Yeah. No. Yeah, that's and an interesting the, point. Then there's the young people. I just I still think it's really funny when they, um, when Bren asks Twinkle, did you use protection? And she goes, yes, oven gloves. Cause, <laughs> You know, it's kind of because she's popping a pizza into the oven. I just really, I really, I just think it's funny. And she's, she's, I mean, Victoria Wood was genius and a wonderful person to learn how to respect writing with, you know. She taught me such a a lot, which I, every time I'm on stage with Mari, I, I do, I just thank her because without her, in my life at that particular moment in time, I wouldn't have 
been able to even say I want to do this kind of role and then I want to do it well and it's it's because of Vic really because she taught me how to look at words and how to read the music and and see what it looks like on the page and I am a bit sort of forensic when it comes to taking the words of a writer you know into my character as uh, that I make it's very strange I I mean people find it really aggravating I think (laughs) because I love going back to it I love going back to where the full stop is where the exclamation mark is why the person has repeated themselves you know why is it a different repeat? Why is it an echo? I mean, I know. I just, I need to get a life, don't I? No, I mean, because I think if, you, if you're talking about someone like Victoria Wood, who clearly writes with precision and writes mm. exactly because she watches, cause, well, or she watched other people mm. and kind of, and she struck me as a magpie, as someone who listened to someone say something at a bus stop and thought, I'm having that. You know, mm. there is some precision in it. So... Yeah, it would seem to me that literally knowing that the, the cadence and the, the way that that line should be delivered would be, in her work in particular, just absolutely think, crucial. And in Jim's, in Jim yeah. Cartwright's work as well. And I think as well in Lucy's work. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, it is it is syntax and it is, it is northern. There is a certain way of how it's all, you know, whatever accent it, there is a certain way of how it's meant to sound and it's written like that and it's it's very interesting I mean I'm kind of obsessed by I should have been an English teacher oh this has been absolutely delightful thank you so much Obna oh thank you me too oh really lovely thank you I've always wanted to do standard issue Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Caroline Muir from the 18 Keys Project at St. Martin's Trust and Ellie Greenhalge, the lead on the Women's Development Unit, which is a partnership project between the Connection at St. Martin's and Solace Women's Aid. And they have developed a new strategy that aims to end women's homelessness in London. Caroline, Ellie, hello. Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for having us. Oh, thanks for coming on. Could we start with the basics? And that's you introducing yourselves and telling me a little bit about what you do. Ellie, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So as you say, I'm Ellie. I work at the Women's Development Unit and we're doing some strategic work to try and address women's homelessness. And we're doing that particularly in London because that's where we are. But a lot of these factors all take place in very similar ways across the country. So hopefully some of the work we're doing can have impact more widely as well. Great. And Caroline? And I'm from the St Martin and the Fields Trust. I'm the major donor fundraiser. What I do is represent all the other charities in the organisation when they've got big projects that need capital funding. Amazing. You're both doing very important work. Homelessness has historically been seen as an issue that mostly affects men. And if we look at recent stats from Westminster, which has the highest number of rough sleepers in London, four in five are men. But and it's the book that's really important. The true number of women living homeless is unknown, isn't it? So could you tell us a bit about how hidden homelessness most affects women and what that actually means, please? So interestingly, that four and five star is really important at the moment because the proportion of women within that has risen just in the last kind of year or so. We've seen that number rise to 20% of the whole proportion of people recorded rough sleeping, and that's been lower before. So that's an interesting thing at the moment to keep an eye on, as it seems that proportions of women rough sleeping might actually be rising. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, definitely. Women often experience a much more hidden form of homelessness. We tend to think of rough sleeping itself as predominantly a male experience. And maybe when we think of women who are homeless, we think of families in temporary accommodation and things like that, which is often the kind of dichotomy that's portrayed to us. In actual fact, when we think about all statutory homeless people, women make up 67% of that. And I don't think that's a narrative that we really hear much. It's a huge number, a huge number. Mine and Caroline's projects are focusing primarily on women who are rough sleeping, which is a group that's particularly missed and just not really talked about. I don't think in general we really picture women when we think about rough sleeping. Mm -hmm. So we need a focus particularly for this group, particularly because women experience rough sleeping quite differently to men. And that's why we don't hear about them as much. For example, they might often sleep in less visible places in order to keep themselves safe. Or they might not sleep at all at night. They might walk around at night and sleep during the day. They might sleep on buses or in 24-hour kind of retail outlets like McDonald's or in A&E. Or they might be in really tricky situations where they go between sleeping out on the street or being exploited in exchange for accommodation, for example. All of this means that they're not really seen by services. And therefore, in terms of data and everything, it's almost as though they don't exist, but they very much do. And they're very much in need of that support. What doesn't exist is the services to really support them. They're woefully inadequate if you, if you consider that women's needs are very different for men's, particularly in this context when we see so much, uh, so many of the drivers are things like sexual and domestic violence. I was just about to ask you a question about that, because as you mentioned, women experience homelessness very differently from men. And there is a huge intersection with women's homelessness and violence against women and girls, right? Absolutely. And that's homelessness in, in general. And in the kind of, over the pandemic, obviously, we heard a lot about how domestic violence was rising and being reported more as well and the higher risk as well. At Solace, on our advice line, we saw calls increase by 117%, which is just, it's just huge. And obviously, no one can answer all of that. There, there are women going unsupported just through that because that needs a huge increase of funding and support in order to meet that increased need. Mm-hmm. But also what we were finding was that the complexity of those situations was increasing as well. So before people might have called us and, and been thinking about leaving an abusive relationship, understanding what, what their experiences were and thinking about their next steps. During the pandemic, we saw an increase in people who were already homeless, who'd already had to make that decision, who were already rough sleeping because things would come to such a head. Could you tell us a bit about what happens when women are on the streets, when women are rough sleepers? Because you're right, I don't think a lot of people would envisage a woman when they thought about that, they think about a guy in a sleeping bag. But what is the difference in the way that the streets treat women and men? Rough sleeping is obviously a huge risk to to anyone experiencing it. But for women, it's understandably an even higher risk. Almost all women who experience rough sleeping and other forms of homelessness, but rough sleeping in particular, will have experienced violence, probably in multiple forms. It might be current, it might be historic, it might be both. And it can often be really high risk and dangerous. I personally have never worked with a woman who hasn't experienced some form of violence. But often what might happen is that you're working with her for a long time before she'll feel safe to to tell you about that Mm, or even understand it in that way and be able to frame it like that. So that really needs specialist support. But it also really impacts on how women present and how they how they manage their rough sleeping as well so like I said they'll disguise themselves at night or walk all night to sleep in the day instead so they won't be seen by services but also experiencing that violence and experiencing rough sleeping itself that's a huge 
trauma and, yeah. and difficulty to manage itself. I think if any of us were doing that, it would be such a difficult thing to cope with, let alone with the violence on top of that. And so the pressures of those factors, as well as other things that might have led to homelessness themselves, can mean women can be dealing with really poor mental health. They might be using substances to cope. They may have been care leavers and be having to deal with everything that comes with that and not have any family support networks. They may have had children removed from their care. So they're dealing with a lot of different things. And that also means that they've often been really let down by people in their lives and that includes services. And so their trust of services is really, really low. So services aren't looking for people in the right places, but they're also, when they're reaching women, not always understanding or not able to support them in the way that women need. And it can take a really long time to build up that trust and get the kind of holistic and support they need to, to help them begin to recover. Caroline, anything that you would like to add? Yeah, just how diametrically opposed so often these scenarios are for men and women in that men, their first point of call is a mixed sex hostel. You know, it's 85% dominated by male uh, clients. Women go as a very last resort. So you can imagine the state women are in when they present for help of that kind, as opposed to the condition that men are in. Their physical and mental health is at the lowest ebb. And therefore, they need a lot of support. And one of the things I found most shocking when I started working on the 18 Keys project was that women were regularly turned away because their needs were so great. That was the thing, the single thing that made me so angry. I kept thinking an example of me would be going to hospital only when I badly needed A&E and then saying there's no ICU unit. It it just doesn't bear thinking of that women are turned away from mixed sex hostels because their needs are too great. And when, as you've both just covered there, when they finally found a way to take themselves there, because that is their last resort, and then the last resort is closed, that's awful. And I think that for women in particular, that's really turned around on them. So the whole narrative around women is that they're the ones who are too high need. They're the ones who aren't engaging. They're invisible to services. They're hidden. When it's really completely the other way around, we need to be thinking about what our systems and services are are doing that mean that women can't approach them. For example, having a day centre that is predominantly accessed by men, that's really intimidating in itself. And looking in the places where women actually are rather than expecting women to make themselves visible and in in great danger. And also, yeah, it's, of course, completely understandable that after all of that, women are experiencing huge amounts of trauma and are coping with that in incredibly resilient ways but that's seen as a failing and it's seen as almost their fault oh come on ellie come on caroline why won't women just stop oppressing ourselves come on i know (laughs) so the government has committed to ending rough sleeping by 2024 and while i'm you know cynical doesn't even quite cut it of any promises it makes (laughs) The ability to house so many homeless people in the pandemic in a very short space of time does indicate that maybe, just maybe, this is possible. Although that comes with the huge caveat that getting people off the streets and into a safe environment isn't just a matter of putting a roof over their heads. We've just covered some of the stuff that women are also dealing with that, you know, obviously the men are dealing with as well, but that that women in particular are dealing with. So none of this can be achieved without looking at the needs and circumstances of women living homeless and how often they are different to men living homeless. And that is where your strategy comes in. And it's the first time a strategic approach has been applied to women's homelessness, isn't it? Because women, you know, who cares? But can you tell us a bit more about it and the research behind it, please? 
yeah, as you say, women are unfortunately often seen as almost like a niche and an add-on. Or wouldn't it be great if we can have this extra thing that so, so you know that's an extra wonderful thing that we can have but ultimately you know if the funding's not there that's that's the first thing that goes and it is great that we're looking at ending more sleeping by 2024 that's a fantastic aim and i think like you said a lot of the stuff that happened in the pandemic shows that this really is doable we've just got to put services in the right places and do it properly it's the money that we need and it used correctly so used thinking about women from the start but one thing that the government rough sleeping strategy that was set out in 2018 said is that we often know less about women and their needs than we do about men who rough sleep, which kind of just captures it all. There is a lot of research now and a lot of small, really specialist services that do understand what women need and how their needs differ. But we need to take that right to the top. We need to have a really shared understanding of what it means, how we can approach it and make sure it's a priority. So I have a fun thing that I do when I'm looking at strategies so we've got government strategies, we've got local authority homelessness and rough sleeping strategies, and I generally do control F and search for women. And it's usually mentioned about five times. I was going to say, but that's um, a pretty fast search. It's very fast. It makes my job very quick. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, it's just kind of, there's always usually a thing that says, oh, yes, and we need to think about women and domestic violence. That's good in itself. And there's a lot of good stuff out there and a lot of good willing but what we can do with our strategy, what we want to do is go, okay, we've done the work. We have had a look at it. We've talked to everyone. We've seen what's needed. There can't be an excuse anymore of we don't know what the needs are. We don't understand it. We just need to now move to the action point and go, well, okay, we do understand the needs. We understand what we need to do. Let's do it. Caroline, where does 18 Keys come in? Tell us about that, which is very exciting. I was there at the launch of the WDU strategy and I was so excited because one of the things I've got to do is justify whether we actually need a specialist form of really superb accommodation for women who've got long-term experience of street homelessness. Because surely there aren't any, are they? Well, women are just so niche. I mean, it's incredible yeah. to see three of us on the same phone call, if I'm honest. You know, it could be super serving, honestly. What, what are they that's different? Um, well, actually, you know, such basic things. I mean, really basic things. I was looking at this 18 Keys project from the point of view of the woman who's going to be running the facility, the manager of the, the site that we're developing. And she said, women need mirrors. I mean, that's one of the things they need. There's no mirrors in this facility. Women need that. The importance of a mirror for a woman who's lost all sense of herself and who's perhaps got really tough issues to deal with all sorts of trauma issues she needs a decent mirror to start her rehabilitation journey something as simple as that a reminder that she's not invisible she's not invisible exactly mm. exactly and and you know specialist support it's lovely to have a roof it's great to have your own key it's fantastic to have a shower and a loo that you don't have to share in fear it's also really important that these aren't just hot houses for all your trauma. You need specialist counselling. Mm -hmm. You need specialist therapies, everything from gardening to cooking, finding a, a new sense of community when perhaps you have felt deep loneliness and lack of networks. Looking at the idea of their independence being absolutely what we are working towards with the 18 Keys project. It's not a long-term forever home. It's a place where you reskill and you redevelop your sense of self so that you do really badly want to go and find independence out there in the world. So you have something to offer it, whether you've got new skills in the job that you've discovered that you've been working on in voluntary work in the voluntary sector or you've found 
some IT skills or gardening skills or any of the enrichment activities that might have sparked joy could bring you that sense of what you want to do next. But we really want to have the 18 Keys project symbolizing women discovering themselves again and working out how to really want to take that next step to independence. I think that confidence and getting that belief in in themselves back is just it's it's the key it's the 19th key it's the thing that will make them think that actually I do have a valid role in society no matter what society might have made them feel okay I'm going to ask you a potentially impossible question so brace yourselves what are the key changes that could make the biggest differences fast a couple of things I suppose I think a really big thing would just be for for example a government to go yes, we recognise that actually there are women rough sleeping and we need to work specifically to end women's rough sleeping by 2024 in order to end all rough sleeping by 2024. And I think that would really help. We know there's a huge amount of willing from talking to a lot of services in the last few years and people really want to do it. People are becoming increasingly aware of the issue and want to make change. But it's really difficult when you're told from above all the other things that you have to focus on. So that would be brilliant. And can you imagine if we had a national women's homelessness strategy that would give us huge amounts of ways to work and, and really encourage everyone to do it and give, give people justification and reasons to do it. But also we need intensive specialist safe projects. Like I can't say this word safe enough because women aren't safe and they also don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And what's really important and what's really nice about the 18 Keys project of being called that is that people need a key to feel safe they need to be able to shut their front door yeah. um, but they also need to not be surrounded by men who they may feel intimidated by and who also may be intimidated by and worse and they need someone to show them that they care and that they matter and that they're going to be given that time by a specialist person to understand them and support them so i chatted to the very excellent laura bates recently about her new book fix the system not the women i mean it's a mantra for a t-shirt right And something that she said that is just astounding is that, you know, people go, oh, what can we do to help? It's a question I ask all the time on Standard Issue. What can we do to help? And the point is, so many of the answers are out there, but they're not sexy headlines. So they don't get implemented. They're not this like, oh, we're going to put CCTV here. Look at us doing sexy government things. It's more like, well, we're going to read all this paperwork and we're going to implement these not front page changes. Is that the case when it comes to women's homelessness as well? Well, I think one of the headlines that is an awkward truth is that it would save any government money if they did this properly. You look at the fallout from women, all women who've lost their children because they're homeless. There's no women on the street who are allowed to keep their kids, let's Mm. face it. They reckon 77% of all homeless women have had kids. So you do the maths on how much it's cost the state to pick up the, the huge concentric circles around that issue. Caroline, imagine a government that wasn't constantly shooting itself in the foot and still getting voted in. It's a dream. It's a crazy pipe dream. Okay, the expense of sitting in A&E all night, the expense of needing to be driven out of of Heathrow Terminal 5 where there's good CCTV where, you you know, you feel safe or you've you've slept in a library all day because you, you then sleep on a bus at night. 
the social workers, the police workers, the constant clearing up that the government does rather than address the problem is very expensive and we could save the money. I mean, that's I think that's quite sexy if you're talking to a certain person. <laughs> I think you're an absolute sauce pot. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I always find it. It's you're absolutely right, Caroline. And we always need to be talking in terms of money and the bottom line and why it's financially better to do it, which is absolutely correct and it's absolutely true but also why does it need to be about money why don't we just decide that it's not okay to consign women to violence and degradation and humiliation and living outside on the street and going between that and violence we just don't need to do it we've got the ways to fix it we've got the people who want to fix it it doesn't need to happen but on a more positive note (laughs) it does seem possible if we choose to do it then it's possible We've written some lovely stuff that's very readable and very enjoyable to read, I promise, (laughs) in our strategy and also in our delightful evidence report that kind of outlines everything for those people who do find a good strategy super sexy as well. I've read it and it gave me the horn, if I'm honest. No, I've read it and it is is really interesting and it's really engaging and fury-making. Where can people have a read of that, please, Ellie? So they can read that on our Connection website, which we can share the link for as well. And people can also follow Connection at St. Martin's and our journey with this and with 18 Keys, our Twitter handle at Homeless London. Awesome. And I'm going to ask it, how can we help? So there's always the money thing. We can always have help to deliver services, both at Connection and Solace and 18 Keys. A lot of the case with women is that we have to justify the spending. And so if people can help us do that and help us show how excellent these services are, then maybe we can get a bit of help from government as well to do that or increased help in that sense. And also, I think when we're talking about homelessness, every time we think about that, let's kind of think about women or just think about the people who we don't see on the TV, on the screen, in the article, and think about the people who aren't captured by that narrative those narratives around I mean I don't need to say it on this podcast but narratives around the stigma and shame about women not having children with the women not having a home because they're homemakers and they're carers let's ditch all of that and actually think about what our systems and society have done to put women in that awful position absolutely one of those exciting things about being at the WDU strategy launch was that one person in the sea of 30 different homelessness charities asked what would we do if we just did one thing and Ellie's reply was we'd give high level support to women with long-term experience of street homeless and that is exactly what the 18 keys project is about if we do this well we can have help from Ellie and her team impact studying the results of of the work and we can roll this out it can be replicated Having 18 people is economically viable for the kind of support we're looking for. So the same therapist who's highly trained turns up every week. We have decent relaxation sessions every week, specialising in in addressing trauma. We have therapeutic gardeners coming in. All of these things can be impact studied so that we can really make sure we have a good practice model to share with all the cities in this country so that we roll out this program that really works and and there's nothing like women getting together and sharing good ideas to really make you want it to work oh here here when does 18 keys launch we're in a sort of the quiet phase of the campaign at the moment where we, we we go for the big money and as soon as we've got the bulk of the fund we'll be turning it into a public appeal but at the moment you can you can read all about us on 18keys.org the, the website so do do have a look at that if you've got a chance Caroline thank you and Ellie thank you it's a topic that's not going away fast but it does feel like there's a real difference to be made 
Definitely. And I can talk about this all day, every day, and I do. So it's very <laughs> lovely to be able to have another opportunity to do it. Thank you. Uh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you both very much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we deliver a brutal left hook to the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. Something you might have missed over the last couple of weeks. The IBA Women's World Boxing Championship concluded last week in what was something of a damp squib for British boxers. Four English boxers, two Welsh and one Scot took part and not a single one of them made it to a medal event. It's kind of disappointing because I feel historically we've done all right, that said. I think maybe it's more the case that we had one really exceptional talent in Nicola Adams who made it feel like we were doing better than perhaps we actually were. The real success story here is Turkey, who picked up seven medals, including a whopping five golds, and then Ireland sitting just below them on the table with two golds. While we're on the subject of boxing, it's just been announced today, as I record this, that two American boxers, Alicia Baumgardner and Michaela Mayer, have agreed the terms for a super featherweight unification bout later in the year. As it stands, Mayer holds the WBO, IBF and Ring Magazine titles, while Baumgardner has the WBC and IBO titles. The winner, of course, takes them all, which I'm sure is what ABBA were referring to in the song. What's going on in Paris, I hear you ask? Well, as ever, the French Open is full of surprises and at the time of recording on Tuesday, world number one Iga Sviatek was through, as was Emma Raducanu, but Naomi Osaka, Ons Jabeur and Barbara Krejcikova were all out. Heather Watson and Harriet Dart were also both out in the first round, so it's kind of all on Raducanu for Britain. Sviatek's winning streak is now up to 29 matches, which is the longest of any WTA player since 2013. I think she may just add a few more to that number. Meanwhile, Naomi Osaka has said that she might not play Wimbledon this year after the WTA and ATP stripped it of ranking points. And fair play to them. They've done that because of the decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players, a move which I have previously criticised on this very podcast. And this only adds to my feelings about it, to be honest. The men's and women's governing bodies for tennis have stripped the ranking points because other tournaments are allowing Russian and Belarusian athletes to compete and so it's unfair to give other players an advantage by picking up extra points in this one tournament, i.e. Wimbledon. Asaka says that without those points up for grabs, what's the um, point? She says it will feel like an exhibition tournament and there's really not going to be anything to play for. She'd not made a decision yet, she said, but that is where she's leaning towards. I think it's actually kind of arrogant of the club to proceed with this stupid plan because you've taken arguably the most prestigious tennis tournament in the world and the decision that they've made means it's going to be stripped of prestige and world-class athletes won't want to play it. And we don't know how long all of this is going to go on for, so I'm just going to say again, it's a stupid decision and they should revise it. Okay, on to today's main story, which is that for the first time ever in the history of the tournament, women will referee at this year's Qatar World Cup. Three female referees have been selected, and they are Stephanie Frappard of France, Rwanda's Salima Mukansanga, and Japan's Yoshima Yamashita. There will also be three 
female assistant referees, Noisa Back of Brazil, Karen Diaz Medina from Mexico, and the USA's Catherine Nesbitt. Frappar has previously refereed at Champions League and Euros qualifier level, Mukun Sanga at the African Cup of Nations, and Yamashita in the Asian Football Confederation Champions League. So all three very experienced refs. The chairman of FIFA's Referees Committee, Pierluigi Colina, who, if you follow international football, you'll absolutely recognise he is a terrifying-looking fella. He said that for the Federation, we clearly emphasise that it is quality that counts for us, not gender. This is great news and undeniably progress, but... I worry for these women. I worry for the amount of abuse they're going to get. I worry for the attention brought on them, the unfair scrutiny they'll be subject to, the attempts to interpret the behaviour of male footballers or the actual behaviour of male footballers and the way that their gender will dominate all of these conversations. I really do worry about that. We've seen it happen time and again with female assistant referees and it's fucking shit. However... We are talking about an organisation who, less than 20 years ago, suggested that the key to popularising women's football was to wear shorter shorts. Oh, we miss you, Sep, but your memory lives on in this very corrupt World Cup, so that's something. Anyway, my point is, we've come a long way since 2004. Most of us. Some of us. That's all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which film which made me write, this makes no sense, across the top of my notebook, (laughs) did we watch this week? This week we watched 1992's Whoopi Goldberg appreciation vehicle, Sister Act. Directed by Emil Ardolino, who brought us classics such as Three Men and a Little Lady, as well as Dirty Dancing, the film was written by Paul Rudnick, who had also worked on such classics as The Addams Family and First Wives Club. And I think you're probably starting to get the measure of this film a little bit. But are you? In fact, Rudnick wrote the film with Bette Midler initially intended to play the lead, but after Goldberg came on board, so much jiggery-pokery had gone on with the script that he refused to be associated with it, and as such, it was credited to a pseudonym, Joseph Howard. What a mistake to maker. Fun fact for you, <laughs> Carrie Fisher had a hand in this film as one of the many script jiggery-pokers. I always knew I loved that woman. Yeah. The reasons are, you know, too vast to count. I know. So let's have a look at the plot. And I won't lie to you, it's it's simple, but it is effective. <laughs> Goldberg plays lounge singer Dolores Van Cartier, who performs at her married lover, mobster Vince LaRocca's Reno Casino? Nightclub? I'm not 100% sure, but it's basically a shit Reno Vegas. Reno Casino has a better ring to it, it though, does. doesn't it? It does. Anyway... Things take a turn for all involved after La Rocca, played by Harvey Keitel, rather insensibly gifts his lover his wife's mink coat. Not just mink, purple mink. And when she goes to confront him about his faux pas, witnesses him offing an employee. Somewhat taken aback, she hotfoots it to the popo, who promptly put her in witness protection in a musty, dusty old convent, headed up by Reverend Mother Dame Maggie Smith who could not have been better cast. Dolores will hide out there as Sister Mary Clarence, who's transferred from a 
progressive convent elsewhere, or at least that's what they're telling the other nuns. Dolores is used to wearing lacy knickers and a bit put out by this habit malarkey that she's got to wear. Reverend Mother blatantly thinks she's a bit of a one, and as punishment for her sins, she's ordered to join the choir, where we come to know Quiet Nun, Sister Mary Robert, Jolly Nun, Sister Mary Patrick, played by who, Hannah? (laughs) Kathy Najimi. Yeah, who is? Most well-known. Exactly, Peggy Hill. And badass nun, Sister Mary Lazarus. Mary Clarence winds up (laughs) getting roped into leading the choir, who are, it's fair to say, pretty shit. But after giving them a little modernisation, fucking hell, give those nuns a Grammy, and the streets around St Catherine's Church are literally pouring in to hear them sing. Well, it's bloody lovely, isn't it? There they are, doing good in the community, as the good Lord intended, by the power of revised Motown numbers and skipping, and the Pope is going to come and visit to see. Meanwhile, there's a leak in the Popo, and before you can say, should you really be on stage if you're in witness protection, LaRocca has sent his cronies to find Dolores. The nuns head off to Reno en masse to save Sister Mary Clarence, but can they convince her would-be killers that she's now a woman of the cloth? Will they save her? And what will the Pope make of these thoroughly modern Marys? The film was a huge hit, raking in over $231 million. It was the eighth highest grossing film worldwide of the year and the sixth highest in the US. It received the kind of reviews you'd expect, like, this is fun, but it's pretty predictable. And, you know, I can't disagree with that, but does everything have to be Raging Bull? I've never seen that film. It's a rhetorical question. (laughs) It spawned a sequel just a year later, launching the career of Lauren Hill, a musical which has starred the likes of Sheila Hancock and Jennifer Saunders, and apparently (gasps) there is even a Sister Act 3 planned imminently. Full disclosure, I am extremely fond of this film. I've spoken about it on the podcast before. I've seen it so many times that I sing all the different nun voices when I'm watching it, as my mum discovered (laughs) yesterday to her merriment. Mick, I know you've watched it, and I know, broadly speaking, where you stand on it. Hannah, this was a first watch for you, and I know it has some components that will appeal to you. Motown, nuns, Maggie Smith, (laughs) and I assume... Because, you you know, you're human, Harvey Keitel and Whoopi Goldberg. On the face of it, what's not to like? Were you expecting to like it, first of all? I was expecting to like it in a different way than I liked it. I was kind of expecting to like it in the fact that, yeah, I do like Whoopi Goldberg and I do like a bit of Motown and... I do like nuns. jokes about the Catholic about nuns. Yeah, well, they're not Catholics. In fact, the best joke in it is when one of the nuns says, "Were they Catholics?" <laughs> I liked it more because it was just fucking daft as fuck, and it made me laugh. And in that sense, and there were bits where there's just literally it makes no narrative sense whatsoever, and I kind of admire. The fact that nobody even cares, that they've all just gone, (laughs) oh, fuck it, it don't matter. Like, obviously, everyone who's involved in this has to go from San Francisco to Reno. No one rings the local police to say, could you be waiting for them there when they get back? It's just mad. It's mad. Yeah. I saw it at the cinema. Did you? I saw it at the cinema when it first came out. Yeah, my my lovely mum took me to see it. And then it was a firm favourite in our house. For after, you know, it probably came out on VHS about four years later or whenever, and then it was absolutely always on in our house. So I know it and love it very well. 
I could not tell you how many times I've watched it, but watching it again yesterday, because it's the first time I've watched it in a while, I did mm. actually have one criticism of it on watching it one? again. Yeah, one that I think is like... I mean, Was it could, the plot? No, I mean, you can argue about the plot and whatever, but like I said, not everything has to be, you know... Start with your details, Hannah, the plot. But like, one that I think is sort of actually detracts from the enjoyment of it a little bit which is that if you split the film into four parts i think the second part is a bit too long and not wildly entertaining and the film's an hour and 40 minutes and it could easily have been 90 minutes i think that's the only criticism like serious genuine criticism that i have we we chat about the length of films and you know we're all in favor of a 90 minute yeah. film unless it's about you know unless it's a western i was just about to say unless it was a western for hannah she's she's in she can't she can't not mention the western love you know and then she could watch it for at least eight hours uh without stopping yeah but i think that's more your attention span these days understandably jen yeah. than it being a flaw in the film because it didn't feel long to me at all i'd have said it was about an hour and a half it's really pacey it feels really pacey there were less bangers than i remember there's only really three like absolute bangers i was expecting there to be four i don't know why well i was expecting more music in general and certainly more motown in general um there's quite a lot in the second one there's quite a lot of motown in the second one I would say. Also, it opens with Heatwave, and I thought yeah. it might have peaked too soon for Hannah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's opened with Hannah's favourite song. Yeah. Whoopi Goldberg, though, she's just, oh, she's just she's chef's brilliant. She keeps everything moving. She's just eminently watchable in every film she's in. You know, when we watched Ghost and we were a bit like, about a lot of the plot with that, we were like, but Whoopi Goldberg, man, she's just a scene stealer in the best possible way. Because she steals a scene, but also allows everyone else in it to shine. It's, it's, it's a formidable talent. I would actually say, to, to me, actually, I think it's Kathy Lujimi that's amazing in this film. Because there's literally always something going on on her face. There's mm. al- She's always doing something. She's always in motion. She's always like really wide-eyed or like grinning or something. And, and it doesn't veer into mugging. Or if it does veer into mugging, it veers into mugging in an entertaining fashion. I think I laughed more at her than anyone else in this. Dame Maggie Smith. Oh, she's perfect, isn't it? It's like the best role for her ever, surely. Oh, I mean, that's that's a pretty big claim for someone who has been in the biz for 283 years. She is so good in it. Like, it's, oh, it's just brilliant. It's brilliant. I think everyone in it is brilliant. I think all of the kind of, like, lesser nuns, you know, or, like, smaller, (laughs) not lesser nuns, that's a mean thing to say, but, like, the smaller roles, they're fucking brilliant. Alma on the piano who can't hear anything. Absolutely brilliant. Like, all, I just, I just think they're all fucking great and i love that it is all women and they get to be funny and there's not really any kind of edge to it yeah like the the sex and the violence is very very mild and it's comedy isn't it like Mm. the gangsters are the most bumbling fuck nuts you've ever met you know at one point when you're just like at this point this is the biggest plot hole for me and i know that is saying something hannah so bear with me (laughs) but the biggest plot hole for me is like okay you have discovered that she's done a runner you know she's not a nun they'd have just shot her i've seen the sopranos they'd have just shot her and yet they don't they just chase nuns around a casino and it's joyous (laughs) 
Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say just. I cannot be anywhere near as enthusiastic about it, I'm afraid, Jen. But obviously, I've never seen it before, so it must carry some kind of happy childhood memories for you. But it's just... I mean, I don't think anyone involved in this has ever met a nun before or knew much about religion because it's just, it's its kind of sort of technically mad. I mean, why he chooses to put her in a convent in the first place is, is just plot, plot device, plot device. But I don't know, when they're all applauding, there's a bit where nun, they all take a vote of what they're going to do. Nuns don't fucking vote. One of their vows is a vow of obedience. It's just, they get told what to do. <laughs> the whole thing is really daft, but... Certain parts of it are daft in such, for me, such a chortling way. When that guy, the, her contact policeman, comes back into the office. Oh, my God, yes. And, and he, he punches that guy and then he says, here's our leak. And two pl- other policemen just come on <laughs> and drag this guy off. And nobody questions yeah. anything about it. There's no due process. Nobody goes, well, Bob, he's always seemed quite nice. Yeah, he's a, <laughs> he could have just been on the phone sorting out a different case or ordering a pizza. You just yeah. punched him because he was on the phone. It yeah, seems it's... very weak as evidence goes. The whole thing seems so daft that it then just becomes intrinsically funny to me. So, like I say, I did have quite a lot of fun watching it. Also, like, the Pope goes because these, these yeah. nuns are doing something so different. One, they're not Catholic. What the fuck is the Pope yeah. doing there? <laughs> Two, has he never heard of gospel choirs? Like, yeah. <laughs> do you know what? Yeah. This, isn't, this isn't new that people get really giddy when they're singing. It's just that Western religion is usually pretty dull in comparison to other religions or yeah. other celebrations of Christianity. Uh, white Western, I would Sorry, say. Sorry, yes, White yeah. Western. That's what I meant, but thank you. Oh, for I know. Clarifying. I think, like... You know, I, I'm possibly reaching a little bit here to find something profound about a film that is just lovely fun to watch. But I do think that there are some quite nice messages in it about compassion and understanding difference and using religion as a force for good rather than in the kind of conservative, small C way. I think that's going. <laughs> it's kind of about like religion as, you know, like Jesus would probably have wanted it and i think that's quite nice yeah a bit like what hannah said i don't think it's that's how it works in the real world no i'm not really for organized religion but no i I think it's it's fine that it is just a lovely feel-good fun movie and you're right it's it's kind it's warm you know she is kind of othered and i was like "Mm, she is she is othered do you think but they get over their differences and form something much more powerful there's a couple of lines in it where she refers to being black in a room full of like white people, which I just never, ever noticed before. I never noticed those lines before, which I think also sort of says a lot about like the innocence of being a child, doesn't it? That those things just don't register with you. Mm. Yeah. There are a couple of bits that feel really 80s to me. The bar fight just reeks of the 1980s. And also the bit where they're like the hoodlins are outside the church. Yeah. You go, hey, what's that noise? Its portrayal of the community it exists in is really hackneyed as well, I would say. I wouldn't argue with any of those points, but there's nothing like... I don't think there's anything in it that is offensive. Like, if we want to talk about whether or not it's technically a good film, is the script a masterpiece? No. Is it, like, Oscar-winning? Like, no. It's not beautifully shot or anything like that, but it is just a lovely, as you say, Mick, warm film. And I don't think there is anything in it 
that I would see now and be like, oh, that's problematic. Like, it's just maintained, I think. Sorry, I'm not keeping my powder very dry here, but... <laughs> well, this is the area... <laughs> the this moment is the area you chose it which, last week. <laughs> and we're supposed to discuss it in this bit. So, yeah, you can say. I have a question which is entirely unrelated to this. She's told at the start she has three vows that she has to yeah. keep one is a vow of chastity one is a vow of obedience and, and the last one is a vow of poverty i think i've got those in the wrong order and i wondered which one of those were you mickey noonan and jen offered forced to go into a nunnery which one of those would you would you find hardest i don't think i'd be very good at any of those things to be honest with you obedience obedience for me yeah and there's no thinking about it it's obedience no, no. yeah that's why we were bad catholics hannah yeah <laughs> I couldn't pick. I, none of those appeal to me, I have to be honest. <laughs> Any listeners concerned that Jen was going to get us in Sister Act 2 back in the habit? She's she's not going to get in the habit at all. I've had a really nice time. I like it. And I will probably at some point in my life watch Sister Act again because I just think it's it's really nice and warm and I like the singing. I really love Whoopi Goldberg. It didn't make me laugh out loud as much as it did when I was younger, but it just makes me feel kind no. of warm and fuzzy inside. And, I, and that's yeah. something that religion has never done before. <laughs> yeah. I did have, like... It's a bit embarrassing to admit, but I did have a little cry when I watched it. I do cry at everything now, so it's not that surprising. Was it when she had to take her shiny purple bra off? It was the end. It was the Pope. It was the Pope bit. It made me cry. I was like... Oh, my God, Jen. This is what happens when people aren't raised religious. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. It did make me think of the other non-related film from around the same era, and I, I thought, I bet that one hasn't stood the test of time at all. Do you know Nuns which one? On the run. Nuns on the run. Which again, I used to watch and watch yeah. and watch. But like, even remembering some of the scenes now, I'm like, ah, 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 no. No, I don't think that would go down very well anymore, would it? Bloody hell, I'd forgotten about that Spectacles, film. Spectacles, testicles, wallet and watch. <laughs> so I'm going to ask the question, guys, rated or dated? Rated. Um. Well, I mean, it's not dated, as you pointed out. I mean, except for huge chunks of it um uh, i have no interest to find out what happened in sister act two more uh, of the same right exactly the same thing but with lauren hill and a little boy who t- can't sing very loudly and then learns to sing loudly exactly the same okay. like he's just quiet none it's it's brilliant in that case i'm just gonna say oh god date it Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> I'm going to say a big, fat, rated, uh, obviously. No one is surprised by that news, Jen. <laughs> no one is surprised. Mickey, is it your turn next? It is my turn next, and I have a feeling, maybe keep my powder dry. Who knows? I'll be surprised, but we're going to be watching 1987's The Witches of Eastwick. And just so you know, Ooh. going in, Jen, Jack Nicholson is in it at least once. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women.